So our text today is really about the do's and don'ts, the can'ts and the won'ts. And that's our topic, which essentially boils down to our Christian freedom. We know that Jesus has set us free. We know that the chains have been broken. We know that we are able to have liberty in certain things. The question is, what are they and how far can we take those liberties before they actually become sin? Now, the Bible gives us very much black and whites, and these are the non-negotiables of God. For example, the Ten Commandments are not called the Ten Suggestions or the Ten Contemplations. They are commands. So when God says, you shall have no other foreign God, no graven images, you shall not take my name in vain, honor your father and mother, don't murder, these things fall into this essential non-negotiable categories. So as Christians, we are to never find liberty in those non-negotiables. God has judiciously laid down the law that we are to honor. So in the black and whites, which becomes expanded throughout the Bible, as we go further and further in scripture, we see that this list of do's, which we are called to do, and these lists of don'ts, which we are called to abstain from, becomes more and more comprehensive. Now, when the Christian uh, person comes to these things, we are to submit to God's law. For example, there are no loopholes for the Christian when it comes to the command, you shall not murder, which means to take an innocent life. There's absolutely no wiggle room. We are to submit to that. In one of the do categories, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. There's absolutely no wiggle room in that. So if I'm, I'm bearing in my heart guilt or bitterness or resentment towards someone else, we have to repent of that because God has commanded us in a non-negotiable area to do that such thing, which is loving our neighbors as we even love ourselves. And who brushed your teeth this morning? who combed your hair, who showered your body, who dressed yourself. We all do that because deep down inside, we love ourselves and we are called to meet the needs of our neighbors. Now, moving away from these non-negotiables, we have the non-essential things. And these are our liberties, our freedoms, those things that God has allowed us to do for our pleasure. The Bible says that all things were given to us to please us. That's how good God is. He knows that we are away from him. He knows that we're in a fallen world. He knows that we battle this thing called sin and our old nature. And yet even in that, God gives us sparks of joy, gives us uh, things by which we can find pleasure in here on earth. But then the Lord lays down some guidelines so those pleasures don't turn into sin issues. And that's really the topic on our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are called to have liberty, but don't take those things of liberty too far to where they become sin issues. So some of the issues we might be dealing with is music. Am I allowed to listen to certain kinds of music? Or maybe clothing. Can I wear certain kinds of clothing or makeup? Or can I gamble? Or can I consume alcohol? Can I drink caffeine? These are some of the issues that God has given us liberty in, but we must safeguard against those liberties. And so some of the rules that keeps us in our lane as Christians is follows. One, does it control me or can I control it? 
Now, that's a very important rule of thumb in this area of our Christian liberty. So, for example, drinking. is Does the bottle consume me? Does it control me? Do I visit the three wise men, Jim Beam, Johnny Walker, and Jack Daniel, you know, for wisdom, or can I control it? Is it something in which I have the reins and I can pull back at any time? That's very, very fundamental because the Bible says we are to be controlled by nothing except God himself. He's the one who is leading and directing and guiding. And so if we don't have control over it, we must, even if it's a liberty issue, forsake it. The second rule is the rule and principle we're going to look at this morning. And it's as follows. Let love and the consideration of your fellow Christian guide your liberty. The driving force between what we can and can't do in these gray areas is ultimately love for our brothers and sisters. And the word love is agape, which is self-sacrificing love. It's the love that God sent his son into the world And it's the love that pinned Jesus to the cross. It wasn't nails that held him there. It was his love for us that held him on that cross. And so self-sacrificial love and consideration for our brothers and sisters becomes the principle or driving force for our liberty in this world. So with that, let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to take verses 8 through 13. Now, if you weren't here last week, the Corinthian church is writing Paul in a letter and they have a bunch of question and answers. And here in this section of Christian liberty, they're trying to argue their point, their reasoning with Paul. And their reasoning and their arguments are logical, theological, biblical. And so in their reasoning themselves, there is no error. But in every argument, and there's three of them in this chapter, Paul gives a rebuttal. Yes, you are correct in your logic. However, you're missing this point. The first point is knowledge. The Corinthians said, we know what the Bible teaches. We understand our liberty. Whom the Son sets free, RG, is free indeed. It is for freedom, Bertie, that Christ has set us free. We are new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Our shackles from the, the master of sin and death has been, set, has been broken and we've been set free. We've been transfer, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's marvelous light. We go from children of Satan and we're born again as children of God. The Corinthians are saying, we know that to be true. Therefore, and the the issue in chapter 8 specifically is meat sacrificed to idols. There was a very paganistic system in the Roman Greco world, and people would sacrifice to idols, and some would eat the meat, and some felt condemned by eating that meat. And the Corinthians are saying, we know that that meat has nothing to do with anything. We know that Christ has set us free, and we have liberty. And Paul says, true. However, Uh, arrogance is, or knowledge creates arrogance. And the word is puffed up, but love edifies or builds up. And what he's saying is people who have big heads tend to have little hearts. They're lopsided. 
They're, they're all head knowledge and no heart knowledge. And the Corinthians were just that way. I am going to do what I want, when I want, how I want, and nobody can tell me otherwise, even if it offends my brother. Paul says, you are majoring in the minors. You're missing the point. Let love drive your liberties. Then their second argument is this. There is but one God. And as Christians, would we agree with that? So if there's one God, how many other gods are there? That means these idols that people are worshiping are nothing more than statues made by man's hands. They have eyes, but these statues can't see. They have noses, but these statues can't smell. They have mouths, but these statues can't speak. They have absolutely no power. So the Corinthians logic is this. They are sacrificing to statues made by men's hands. Therefore, that meat is nothing more than meat put before an object. It means absolutely nothing. And Paul says, you are correct. However, not all men have that knowledge. Meaning within the church, every one of us are on different levels spiritually. We have different levels of understanding of the Bible. We have different levels of relationship with us and our Lord Jesus Christ. All of us are in different places. So what I know to be true and what I can logically see in Scripture, you may not and vice versa. So something that I do that stumbles my brother is to be forsaken. Just because I know it to be true and I have the freedom doesn't mean I exercise that freedom because you don't know what anybody else is dealing with. You don't know where their mind is at, how sharp their conscience is, so on and so forth. Now, Paul or the church gets into the third argument, and that's right here in verse 8. And the whole idea is we can eat this meat, sacrifice to these idols, because argument number three is in verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. And the word commend is to place us before someone of royalty or to present us before someone of value or worth. If I wanted to get before the CEO of Apple or if I wanted to get before the president of the United States, I can't just call and make an appointment right? Someone or something has to commend us. They have to present us before the king or the president or someone of value. What is Paul saying about food? Does that give you a seat at the table? Does food remove you from the table? Food is absolutely a non-essential item. This is an area of freedom, now, with all things, we are to be wise because if you have food control you, then what does the Bible call you? A glutton. If drink controls you, what does the Bible call you? A drunkard. And so it depends on how much. And again, the rule is, what does it control us or can we control it? When it comes to food, it is a non-essential item. There are some people, you can go to Loma Linda and meet them, seven-day Adventists. They refuse to eat meat because that somehow makes them more spiritual. There are Christians who have turned to veganism because that is somehow showing their love towards animals. That doesn't matter. You can be a carnivore or you can be a vegan, and that has absolutely no bearing on your spiritual walk. Likewise, you can eat non-GMO. 
Oh, I'm gluten-free. Oh, I only eat organic because my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Then you have another brother who eats donuts and and double-double cheeseburgers all the time. (laughs) Physically, physically speaking, you reap what you sow. And so if you're putting junk in your body, expect diabetes and expect all the rest. But spiritually speaking, it has absolutely no bearing on your standing with God. Your eating healthy or eating unhealthy doesn't put a smile or or frown on God's face. It is a liberty issue. It is a freedom issue. And that issue and that liberty came from whom? Christ. Christ has come, and like Birdie said, he has set us free. He has completely libertized us. He has allowed us to have freedoms that we didn't, didn't prior have. For example, leaving the New Testament and going back into the Old Testament was food a big issue. Very much a big issue. But when we look at the issue of food itself, clean and unclean animals, it wasn't the food, and this is important, it wasn't the food in and of itself that made a person holy or unholy. Why did God lay down such strict dietary laws upon Israel? To protect his people. It wasn't so much for the food as it was what the food did. So for example, if you go over to a holiday party, you know, some a friend or family invites you to a holiday party, what do you expect? You expect the host to present some food. If you have a birthday party, if you have any kind of function, it's almost an automatic that you expect the host to provide what? Food. Food is an avenue. The dinner table is an avenue to provide incredible fellowship. The breaking of bread and the fellowshipping of one another and to be able to talk and share stories and laugh with one another and cry with one another. All of these things happen over the dinner table. And in the ancient days, all these feasts, whether they were towards the God of Israel or all the feasts of the pagan gods, lowercase g, they all revolved around food and wine, all of them. So God implements these dietary laws to keep and separate his people from intermingling. Because if they intermingle with the Gentile nations, guess what else they're going to do? They're going to take their wives for their wives. And look what happened to Solomon. He took wives after God specifically said, don't do it from the surrounding nations. And then uh, chapter 11 in 1 Kings says immediately, He falls after the foreign gods. He begins to worship the gods of his wives. And that was because of that intermingling. Look at Leviticus chapter 20. And this just clearly states exactly what we're talking about. And it's important that we know this and we can see our liberties through Christ. Leviticus 20, starting at verse 22. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I drive out before you. For they did all these things and therefore I have abhorred them. Now, 
this is very interesting. In chapter 20, God lists some of the things that the surrounding nations were doing. And I know we don't deal with these issues anymore, but if we did, we know where God's people are supposed to stand. In verses one through five, it's the area of abortion. The Bible says that you are not to take your children and pass them through the fires of Molech. And if you notice in chapter 20, the first five verses deal with just that. These women were giving birth and immediately they were throwing their babies onto hot altars of Molech. And what was Molech? He was the God, the idol of prosperity. These women wanted better jobs, more pay. They wanted freedom. They didn't want to be shackled down. So what did they do? They offered their own child to the God Molech, murdering that innocent child. Now, I know we don't have that issue anymore, but if we did, God has says, said that is abhorrent. That is the way of the world and not my people. Then you look at verse six, it's witchcraft, fortune tellers, horoscopes, palm readers, psychics, mediums, and the like. That is not for God's people. Then you go to verse 13. A man shall not lay with another man as he does a woman. What is that? Homosexuality. I know we don't deal with those issues anymore, but if we did, God calls it abhorrent. And he's saying, I'm giving you these laws and these commands to preserve you from falling into the lifestyle patterns that the world, the surrounding nations are practicing. I don't want you to live that way. Verse 24, hence, I have said to you, you are to possess their land and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. What's another word for separated? Set apart, what else? Sanctified, what else? It's a four-letter word. Holy. That means to be sanctified, separated, set apart. Why did God lay down these fundamental rules? To keep his people holy. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean and between the unclean bird and the clean. And you shall make yourselves detestable, not make yourself detestable by any animal or bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me. For I am the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Why did God say there are clean and unclean animals? So that Israel can be what? Separated, holy, not intermingle and fall into the idolatrous worship and lifestyles of the world systems. Now, God has preserved Israel and we saw this in Jesus in the Old Testament, generation after generation after generation, then out comes Mary, who's born or who has a virgin birth. And who does she give birth to? Jesus Christ. And then Christ comes, he dies on the cross, he's buried, he rises again. And then what happens in Acts chapter two? 
The Holy Spirit comes down from heaven onto earth and what's established? The Pentecost. And what's established in Pentecost? The church. And here God is doing a new thing. Now it's super interesting because in, in chapter two, there's all these people from all the different parts of the Roman Empire, but if you read, they are all Jews. And then you go through chapter eight and you have Philip who's an evangelist and he's preaching in Samaria and they are all Jews. So up until Acts chapter 10, which is years and years after Christ's uh, risen and the Holy Spirit has fallen, the church is made up of only one people group, the Jews. Now turn to Acts chapter 10, and we have a monumental shift in how God is saving people. And this ties in again with our text. Acts chapter 10, and starting at verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with his whole household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continuously. Now this guy, he's a Roman soldier. He's most likely Italian. He's a non-Jew, which another term for a non-Jew is what in the Bible? Gentile, good job, Micah. Gentile. Oh, how old are you? 12-year-old beat all you guys to the trigger. A Gentile. And so he honors God, he fears God, but he's not saved. And so God gives this guy Cornelius a vision. He says, okay, Cornelius, here's a dream for you. And in that dream, Cornelius sees a guy named Simon Peter. Sound familiar? And he's one of Christ's apostles. And he says, I know that guy. I'm going to send two soldiers to go and retrieve him and bring him back to me. Now let's pick up the story in verses 9 through 16. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city. So these are the two men that Cornelius have sent. Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So the more, the Jewish day starts at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour would be what time? Our time. Noon, exactly. It's 12 p.m. and Peter goes up to pray. And verse 10, he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals, notice all kinds, and crawling things of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, you no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, look at verse 24. On the following day, he, Peter, entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am just a man. And as he walked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how, what's the word? 
unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now notice this. When the Lord was speaking to Peter in a vision, what was the Lord saying? Clean and unclean what? Clean and unclean what? What was the topic, the subject matter? Animals. Clean and unclean animals. Peter says what? Clean and unclean what? Men. People. The Jews saw their dietary law. They understood it separated them from the Gentile people, and that caused them to be forbidden to even go inside a Gentile's house. They wouldn't even associate because of these dietary laws with the Gentile people. And this is what's happening in Corinth. Some people are comfortable eating meat, sacrificed to idols. Some people are not. And that fellowship is completely broken. That, that faction is growing larger. The friction is there in the church. And now you have people within the body not even able to fellowship with one another, not even able to go in the same house together, even as believers in the Lord. It was a major issue that separated people groups. Now notice Peter's epiphany. That is why, verse 29, I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason you have sent me. Then Cornelius tells him about the vision. And now verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Verse 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message and all the circumcised believers. Who is that? What people group? The Jews who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So I asked the question again, why were the dietary laws imposed by God? To keep the people separated. Now the church is made up of what groups? Jew and Gentile. So those, those divisions of dietary laws are no longer valid. Those partitions that separated the two group of people are to be thrown away. And now Jew and Gentile can fellowship as one. Why don't Christians uh, follow the Sabbath? It's for the same reason. The Sabbath was there made for man to rest and made for the Jews to be sanctified from the rest of the Gentile nations. They were out partying on Friday nights and guess what the Jews were doing? They were at home together worshiping the Lord. Saturday, the people were out at college, the college football games, and guess what the Jews were doing? They were at home worshiping the Lord. It separated them from all of society. Now the Jew and the Gentile are one. Those barriers are no longer valid. 
they don't matter. So going back to our text in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, you're right. Food doesn't bring you closer to God. Food doesn't tear you away from God. Now, here's his rule of thumb. Here's his rebuttal, verse nine. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now that's the negative side of the rule. Don't let your actions stumble somebody else, even if your actions are in within the range of your Christian liberty. The positive side of it is love and consider your brother in your liberty. Let love and that consideration drive your principles and drive your lifestyle patterns. But I can do it, but I could do it, but I should do it. The Bible says no, not if that liberty causes your friend, your brother, your sister to fall short. Then that liberty therefore becomes sin. It's no longer a liberal issue. It's now a sin issue because you're tripping up other people. Think of it on a racetrack. Every Christian, we're all in the same race, right? Where the, the starting line is our justification when God saved us. The, the race itself is our sanctification, trying to be more like Christ. And what's our, the finish line? Our glorification, when we're in glory with God. And all of us, we're running this race towards glorification. Paul is saying, don't be a hurdle, in somebody's race, be the launching pad. Be that starting block that the Christian can push off of and propel themselves forward. And how you do that is by loving your neighbor and considering their status and their issues that they might be dealing with and even forsaking and sacrificing our freedoms for their benefit. Now we get to the example in verses 10 through 12, and it's specific with meat sacrifice to idols. Once we go through this example, I'll give you a more practical one, something that we can relate to even more. Verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So we have two types of Christian, the strong Christian and the weak Christian. The strong Christian is a Christian who knows the Bible. They know what Christ has done. They know their freedoms. They know their liberties. They know that certain things aren't sin issues and they can partake in them. That's the strong Christian. The weak Christian are those who still stumble over their own conscience. These liberty issues, let's say drinking alcohol is, oh no, that's a sin to me. I I can't even see myself doing that. Therefore, you know, if I do it, I'm sinning against God and it's a sin issue. That's the weaker brother. And in this example, they are in a party there on the temple and it's probably a birthday party or a business meeting. They had those on the temple property and the strong brother, he's watching the orge, which is not to be confused with the sexual things. It's a different word and it's a different type of spelling. Orge is the Roman and uh, Greek uh, religious and ceremonial rites. 
So during these orgies, they would have music, they would have dance, they would have clapping, they would have bowing to these different idols, and then they would have a sacrifice, and then that sacrifice would be cooked, and then that, that food would be served. And so the strong brother can be in that mist, not partake of it, and just think in their heads, this is so dumb. Look at these people bowing down to this rock that, you know, Jim down the street made. This, I can't even believe it. But then the lamb chop comes from the sacrifice and they say, oh boy, I know there's nothing wrong with this meat and they chow down. The weak brother is watching the whole thing and he's saying, I know that guy and he's so strong in the faith. He's always at church. He's serving the Lord faithfully. You know, he treats my family with respect. Like I know he's walking right. But man, this is bringing me guilt. And I know I shouldn't be in here. And I don't have any business being in this idolatrous temple. But look at that brother over there. He's so strong. And notice the word I have in bold, be strengthened. And that's the word empowered. The stronger brother in his example is empowering the weaker brother to do something that they might not feel comfortable doing. But they reason with themselves saying, okay, if so-and-so who I know is walking strong with the Lord is doing it, it must be okay. Even if in my heart of hearts, I'm feeling shame and guilt. So they dig in and they begin to eat that meat. And with every bite, they feel condemned. With every song, they feel like I'm sinning against God. I should not be here. Look at verse 11. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined the brother for whose sake Christ died. Now the word ruin seems so final. It just means damaged. You've damaged your brother. So he begins to eat that meat and now his conscience is bearing guilt against him. And now he feels I've sinned against God. And now he's damaged. It's no longer a joyous situation. That food that was supposed to be for the body is no longer that. It has become a stumbling block. And now he feels I've backslidden, I've done wrong, you know, and there's a potential for that person to say, well, I'm already in the doghouse. Might as well see how far we can take it, right? And go completely left. But the thing is, Christ died for that brother. On that cross, he was thinking of each and every one of us. And so we aren't called to trip up our brother because the Lord died for their sins. Now look how serious the offense is in verse 12. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. How serious of offense is it? Well, in my liberty, I can do as I please. But if my liberty causes another person to sin, then I now sin against the Lord who died for them. Now, this is interesting because you say, well, it's not even a sin issue. But the Bible says, if your conscience bears against it and you do it anyway, that's sin. For example, if I feel guilty about gambling and I'm 100% convinced in my mind that the Bible says don't do it, even though it is a liberty issue, but I'm convinced in my mind this is sin. God says, no way. And I go ahead and I transgress against God and do it anyway. I have now sinned before the Lord. Even though it wasn't a judicial uh, uh, issue, it, had be it became a judicial issue in my own mind, governed by my conscience. So when I willingly choose to disobey God, 
in any way, I have sinned. And if I sinned, I also sin against the Lord. Now think of this. What is the royal law of Christ? Jesus also says this, that all the law and the prophets hinge on this law. Love first, love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself, and everything hinges on those two things. Paul says in our liberty, we can stumble someone to where we sin against them, because they sin against their conscience, therefore sinning against God. And then because we've caused our brother to stumble, we've now sinned against Christ himself. So in our liberty, we can be unloving towards God and we can even be unloving towards our fellow Christian. So the, the thought process is we are not free to do whatever we want, when we want, how we want, even if we're free to do so. Love and consideration for other Christians guides our liberties. Now let's take it just a little bit more personal. And this is a fictitious couple. They don't, they're not here, but suppose there's a married couple here at Journey and the, the wife is the stronger of the two. She's faithful. She prays every morning. She's just God-driven. She's holy in every way. She even makes little sandwiches and cuts the crusts off for the homeless people in the community. She's just truly a devout person of faith. And she says, okay, I'm going to have some girls over on Saturday night and, you know, for a get-together, girls' night out here at the house, and I'm going to throw a poker, a poker night. And so we're all pitching 20 bucks, and the winner takes all. Now, the husband is the, the weaker of the two spiritually. And so he knows his wife and says, man, she's holy. I know. I see how she treats the kids, how she treats myself, how she treats the church. I can see it. She's talking the talk and she's walking the walk. But man, poker night, babe, is that really what we should be doing? And in his own conscience, he says, that's wrong. That's sinful. That, that shouldn't be happening. That's a poor witness. And so the girls start coming over and he says, okay, I'm gonna let you girls have your night. I'm gonna bail. And so he's driving and he says, well, let me hit up the casino because if, if my wife who is so holy and godly, if she says that's okay and if her actions are showing, hey, it's not a big deal, then it's not a big deal. So he drives and he pulls up on the parking lot and as soon as he enters the property, he starts feeling guilt. There's just a shame and a heaviness that he's already starting to feel. I know I shouldn't be here. And so he goes and he puts in 500 bucks and he starts betting really small. And every bet, he's starting to sweat. He's like, man, I, I shouldn't be here. And he loses the 500. And he says, how can I do that? I gotta get it back. And so it's gambler's revenge. I have to get it back and I'm gonna get it back and I can't go home knowing that I blew all this money. So he takes out a thousand bucks and instead of betting 20, he starts betting a hundred because I gotta get this money back. I gotta get it back. And he blows through it. 
And then he says, how can I do this? I sinned against God. I'm now sinning against my family. I'm ruining everything. I have to get it back. So he takes a marker out from the casino alone. And he says, I'm going to start betting big. I'm down 1,500. I'm just going to start betting 1,500. And then he gets real holy, right? God, please just let me hit this one. Just please, Lord, let me just hit it one time. And I'm out of here. And I swear I'll never come back to this place. And then he loses. And he loses. And next thing you know, uh, bad turns to worse. And he sinned against his conscience. Now he sinned against God. He sinned against his family. And the whole time he's thinking, I could have gave that money to the church. I could have gave that money to the orphanage. I could have gave that money and we could have went on a family vacation. I could have sent my kids to summer camp. And now I've just blown it. And now he's destroyed. And he realizes in that moment, his wife had control over it. And, and it didn't control her. And he now sees that I do not have control over this and it controls me. The interesting thing is he's liable before God for his actions and now his wife is liable to God for his actions because she emboldened him with her liberties to stumble and to fall. And here's the really fascinating thing is you can just look around the room. You have no idea what each person struggles with. None. You have no idea what predisposition they may have. There may be someone in this room who has such a strong uh, issue with substance abuse. And every single day they fight those demons. And here you are just knocking stuff back without a care in the world. You have no idea what kind of issues people are dealing with. So we must guard our liberties. Here's another thing. You have no idea what your children's issues may be. So if they see daddy run into the bottle every time they're stressed, guess what they're going to start doing when they're older? Now, daddy might be able to control it, but your child may have the bottle control them and they become ruined. And so we are to guard our liberties for the sake of love. But I can do it doesn't mean I should do it. So verse 13, what do we do when it comes to these liberties? Therefore, if, and you can fill in that blank, you can exchange food for gambling, clothing, music, dancing, entertainment, uh, drinking, whatever the case. Therefore, if blank, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. If you notice, there's two words that are repeating through this passage, brother and stumble. The word stumble in Greek is scandalazo. What is our English word? Scandalize. And it means to set a purposeful trap or snare. So if you're a hunter, you're out trying to hunt. You're putting out traps. You're specifically laying things out so that you can catch your prey. And what Paul is saying is if your liberties are setting traps, if you're laying hurdles before your brother in the race, it is best that you completely forsake those liberties entirely. Why? because you have sinned against Christ by stumbling them and Christ also was on the cross for them. It's really, really important 
that we not only major in the majors, but we also major in the minors. And we make sure that even in liberties, we're not causing people to fall. Now, let's turn to Romans 14, and we'll close with this passage because Paul sums it up perfectly. Romans chapter 14, verses 23, or I'm sorry, verses 13 through 23. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way, I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Here's the idea of the conscience. For if because of food or fill in the blank, your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy your food, do not destroy with your food for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is, what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying the kingdom of God is not about these liberty issues. We don't find our peace and our joy and our comfort in these activities, in these non-essential things. We find our joy in righteousness, which is doing right before God and other people. We find our joy in peace, and we find our joy, I'm sorry, and we find our peace in joy. In whom? The Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Indeed, all things are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. And it is not, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Now in verse 21, that now covers the entire gamut of our Christian freedom from alpha to omega. If anything causes your brother to stumble, it is no longer good. That means those loopholes, the the wiggle rooms, they're gone. And just that one verse, if you aren't living in love and that thing is causing pain to another person, it is to be absolutely forsaken. Verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is not eating from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. So when it comes to Christian liberties, the principle, does it control me or can I control it? Principle number two, am I doing it in love and consideration for my fellow Christian? And if it causes harm and pain, what are we to do? even if we have 
the ability and the right before God to do it. We forsake it in the name of love. Amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.